Thanks for joining me for the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Quick announcement before we get to today's episode. The next run of the WellStart Health Coach Training Academy program begins in October 2022. If you would like to become a health coach or you're already a health coach and you'd like to learn some new techniques and raise your game, or if you are a lifestyle medicine practitioner, an MD, a nutritionist, dietitian, PT, and you'd like to learn skills to help your clients and patients implement what they have learned from you, or if you just want to help the people around you eat better, live better, feel better, get better, then check out wellstartcoach.com. The inner work that I've been doing recently has brought me face to face with something that is probably quite obvious to people who know me or even who just see me in action, but which really I wasn't aware of until very recently, which is the extent to which my mind wants to rank everybody on whatever continuum, whatever dimension it can find. And of course, the goal there is to figure out where I rank. And looking back, one of the patterns of my childhood was if I couldn't be the best or near the best or one of the best or at least get a lot of praise and admiration for excelling, which excel means to like, you know, be better than others, then I would let it go. I would drop it. So there were some sports in which I excelled and there were other sports that I didn't participate in, like basketball, like swimming. There were activities that I got a lot of strokes for for being talented in, and I pursued those. And there were others where I was mediocre, and I let them go. And so, as I said recently, I have been observing the phenomenon and also the cost of the phenomenon in terms of the ways I limit myself and the ways I can put other people in a box, dismiss them, judge them. And I hope it doesn't come out too overtly, but there certainly is a strong undercurrent in my mind that has just been doing this for such a long time that I didn't even realize it. And also noticing how it gets fed, how this um, impulse was reinforced by my society, by my environment, by all the social structures that celebrated excellence, that celebrated talent, that ranked people and honored people who had exceptional abilities in in something or another. And so I was wrestling with all this when I saw, and I can't even remember where I saw it. It might have been a Facebook post or just an Amazon suggestion, a book title called The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary by Dr. Ronald Siegel. And the first thing I got to say is the minute I read that title, I just breathed out. I felt like I got 50% of whatever the book was going to give me, it gave me in the title that like the thought of allowing myself to be ordinary and recognizing that that's fine, like took such a weight off. And I'm not saying that the impulses in my mind still don't exist, but I can now put them in that context and recognize, ah, ordinary is not a problem. In, in, in fact, it's it's a way to connect. It's a way to belong, whereas constantly aiming for achievement and ambition and success so that other people would think of me as special and allow me to belong is really a fool's game. So 
I got the book. I reached out to Dr. Siegel, and he was gracious enough to say, yes, let's talk about it. So what you're about to hear is our conversation about this wonderful book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. So without further ado, Dr. Ronald Siegel, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is really a pleasure. And we're going to talk about your, your latest book, I think, unless you've written one that I don't know about. Um, it's called The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, uh, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. And I have to tell you that I, as soon as I can't remember where I saw it, somewhere online, I ordered it immediately and it took three days to arrive. And I started feeling better the second I read the title. Like there was mm -hmm. something about that that already connected with like the, the next stage in what I what I want to become. And so like just the gift of that title has already like before I even started reading was already such a salve. And um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad. And, you know, it's funny. It brings there's something about simply orienting ourselves in this direction that itself is healing and helpful. I, I remember um, I was working on the book and I was quite beyond deadlines because I kept wanting to research something new, something <laughs> something else interesting that I'd come across. And um, I sent an email to my editor and I said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is focusing on this topic is really useful. I'm seeing my own self-esteem preoccupations loosen up a little bit. I'm better able to show up in the moment. I'm feeling more connected in my relationships. I'm less worried about how I'm doing in the world. And another bad news, of course, is who needs to be the author of yet another book if you're not doing it for self-esteem? So I'll send you back the advance. And she wrote back to me saying, no, no, I think this is a worthy enterprise. And I said, I was kidding, but <laughs> not entirely. There is something about pointing our nose in this direction and just trying to, you know, just noticing the ways in which getting hooked on specialness, attractiveness, competence, whatever it is, you know, getting hooked on these these things that we do to bolster our self-esteem um, actually make us really unhappy. And when we can begin to let it go, ah, it's like dropping a hot coal. It's it's a relief. Yeah. And just there were so many like as I go through my life, so many places where there is this energy expenditure that I don't even I didn't even wasn't even aware of, like like the story I've had since the pandemic started is I'm 10 pounds overweight. And one of the things I do as a health coach, and I like to, you know, live, you know, my principles. And so I was like resisting getting new headshots taken. And I like to wear clothes where I don't have to tuck things in. And I just realized like I'm going through life just with a emotional girdle on to kind mm -hmm. of hide the fact. And since since I read the title of your book, I'm like noticing I'm walking around my belly's out. I'm not mm, trying to, mm. you know, to, to pretend I'm like, what if what if it's OK? Like, what what if I don't have to have the perfect body, which I haven't had, by the way, arguably since I was 17. But it didn't stop me from spending energy bemoaning the fact. Right. And, and we all do. We all have, you know, one of the things that I, um, as you know, explore in the book is how we each get hooked on different um 
uh, criteria or different attributes as the ones that we have to be good at or excel at, or, you know, for, for one person, it's being physically fit. You're a health coach. I could see how that would, you know, play out, uh, would be not unusual. Uh, you know, for somebody else, it's seeming intelligent. For another person, it's being uh, physically attractive or having a good sense of style or being creative. For someone else, it's about just being kind, just being uh, nice, making sure that they're always a good person. Um, and it's not that some of these things aren't laudable and aren't useful uh, attributes. It's just that when we start using them as barometers of our worth as a human being, it causes a lot of unnecessary suffering, not just for us, but for those we interact with, because it's a little bit contagious. You know, when when we're at home being <laughs> an ordinary human being, people around us tend to feel more at home being ordinary human beings. When we're striving to excel and show our best face and and, you know, get likes on social media and uh, and and all the rest, people around us get activated and then they start feeling the need to do the same thing. Yeah, and, and the cost for me, you know, I had the fortune slash mis misfortune of being good at a bunch of things that were laudatory when I was little. Like I was smart, I was good at sports, I was good musically, I was a good writer. And so like in my life, like those were everything. And so anything that wasn't one of those that I wasn't immediately good at, I didn't do, which included having friends which included things like swimming and basketball. Mm -hmm. Like I just I just led such a bifurcated life. If I couldn't pick it up right away and be a star, I didn't want to touch it. And, and I, I, I think I, I think many of us do that, even if we haven't been stars. Uh, you know, I, I often think it's interesting to look at my ability as a graphic artist. If you saw one of my pictures, if I were to draw one now, you'd say, that looks a lot like a third grader drew it. And guess what? In around the third grade, it was like, I realized, well, this isn't my forte. I think I'll avoid it. And mm. what happens? It doesn't develop when we avoid it. <laughs> yeah, art was another one. I, I forgot. I forgot about that one. <laughs> um, so where does this come from? This uh, this sort of pathological thing that causes so much suffering? Why, are we hardwired for it? Yeah, it, it appears so that, um, you know, as as modern psychologists understand the mind and in close relationship, the brain, you know, the brain did not evolve to make us happy. That <laughs> simply wasn't on the agenda. Uh, the brain evolved over millions of years of natural selection to um, enhance survival and particularly to enhance the capacity to successfully reproduce pass on your genes and have your offspring pass on their genes. Because, you know, w while we might imagine that there were happy hominids hanging around with none of these concerns, as it turns out evolutionarily, back in the day, you know, in the African savanna, as it turns out evolutionarily, they're not our ancestors because they didn't get to reproduce as well as the ones who are preoccupied with this. You know, concretely, the way this plays out, is if you were to go to Africa, for example, and go around with a naturalist, uh, the so-called safari, you know, it's really riding with a naturalist in a Jeep, <laughs> they'll point out this pattern over and over and over in a remarkable array of species. There's a dominant male, 
surrounded by literally a harem of reproductively promising females. And over there in the next field is usually a group of somewhat younger males doing the species-specific equivalent of playing basketball, right? <laughs> Trying to hone their skills so they could be dominant. Now, what's up with this? Why would dominance be such a big deal? Why do so many species organize themselves into pecking orders? In fact, we use the phrase pecking order to describe human hierarchies, even though it comes from birds that do this. Mm. Crickets do it. Children at age four do it. They're, you know, the, the research is, is abundantly clear that social species do this stuff. Well, why? Well, as it turns out, in general, if you have dominance in any one of these various pecking orders, the chances of you successfully reproducing and passing on your genes are greater. So the ones who weren't invested in proving their stuff basically didn't get to reproduce quite as much. And that's why we've, in, we've inherited these brains that are quite concerned with it. And the way it shows up in humans is not necessarily you know, going like this, like the chimpanzees do, or literally stealing the food from the others, like so many other animals do. But the way it shows up in us is with concerns about self-esteem. It's all these thoughts that pass through our minds each day about how am I doing? Am I doing as well as he or she is? Or we're comparing ourselves sometimes not to other people in our lives, but to some inner standard. Am I the kind of father I should be? What's my image of fathering? What was my father like? Am I the kind of health coach I should be? Am I the kind of psychologist I should be? Am I the kind of husband I should be? And on and on and on. So we're either comparing ourselves to an inner image or making comparisons with other people. And sometimes, this, you know, when, when I've spoken to people about this, they're taken back, they say, no, I don't compare myself to other people. And I'll ask them, well, describe to me one of your strengths. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm pretty athletic. And they'll say, well, how do you know you're athletic? Well, it's by comparing ourselves to the other people who I think of as not so athletic. And the same is true for being tall or being thin or being kind or whatever it is. We're comparing ourselves in some way to others. And that's how we come to these narratives and these conclusions about ourselves. And, uh, you know, what happens is once we begin to look at this um, with some care, most of us notice with some horror, oh, my gosh, it's happening all day long. <laughs> some thought of hey, I'm doing well or I'm not doing well is entering my mind. And either I'm feeling kind of bummed out and discouraged, like I'm not making it, I'm not quite good enough, I'm not who I want to be, i.e. I'm a few pounds overweight or whatever it might be. Or we find ourselves stressed out on the treadmill trying to keep up and make sure that we keep our edge. Hmm. Yeah, my, my wife feeds hummingbirds and she she does it quite um, comprehensively. So we have maybe four or five feeders out. Each of them has, I think, six or eight little fake plastic flowers with hummingbirds. And even if there's only two hummingbirds and four feeders, they'll fight. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've, uh, um, I've um, co-led meditation retreats at a place in New Mexico that has a bunch of hummingbird feeders. And here we are all practicing being compassionate and you know, connected to nature and being kind to one another. And the hummingbirds are at war with one another, even though there's plenty of food for everybody. Right. And, you know, so arguably, like they're getting better as a species because of this, you know, evolutionary drive. Well, the, well, the, 
the ones who have it and the ones who tend to win in the competition tend to survive more. They tend to be able to provide resources for their young. I'm not sure if hummingbirds care for their young, but but it's it's certainly the way it works with primates that, you know, the dominant primates feed the food that, you know, that they're able to have access to, to their kids before they feed it to other people's kids, you know, and it doesn't take much looking around human societies to realize, oh, yeah, mm. we do it too, don't we? Yeah, well, it reminds me of a study I read about um, the, the pros and cons of neutering your cat, which is supposed to be a responsible thing to do. But one of the, arg the argument of, of, of for not doing it is if we're neutering our cats, then the feral cats are the ones that are all reproducing and they have all these traits that we don't like. Mm. So it's like evolution has like given us this burden of. So in order from, you know, I'm the progeny of, of you know, thousands and thousands of generations of assholes to, to some extent. Well. Well, yes, yes. And there's also good news, because as it turns out, while this instinct for social dominance and for um, <clears throat> for getting ahead is pretty strong in primates, we also have another instinct. We're also a social species that needs to cooperate in a lot of situations. When you see groups of, of primates out in the wild, you know, they warn one another of potential predators. They show one another where there's food. They do cooperative things. And we can also cooperate as humans. And the other thing that we're very good at is nurturing. Now, it's true that we mostly nurture our young. In other words, we'll, you know, we'll really go out of our way to take care of our kids. And the more distant somebody is from us, and sadly, the more they look different from us or feel different from us, we become less and less nurturing as a general rule. Mm -hmm. um, and that part's problematic. But this, the, the potential, this instinct to cooperate and care for others is actually a countervailing instinct that we can nurture and we can develop. And, uh, you know, what neurobiologists tell us is that the neurons that fire together, in other words, that we use, wire together, they bulk up, they become stronger. So if we deliberately turn our attention and decide, you know, even though I feel all these instincts to show off or get ahead or prove myself or make sure I can think highly of myself, and even though I can get addicted to that, I don't actually have to put most of my resources into that. I can turn my resources into something which also is a path. It was a, is a much more reliable pathway to well-being, and actually doesn't have the um, doesn't cause the kind of suffering that being addicted to self-esteem boosts can. Mm. You know, it's almost like you know, if primates, you know, discriminate against those who are not of their tribe or who look more different, and then all of a sudden we're global primates with airplanes and missiles that we'd better evolve to based on this new understanding like okay yeah racism makes sense from a neurobiological evolutionary perspective and we got to get rid of it like we we have to start yeah, nurturing no, the other wolf as you write right yeah i mean i th i think of these instincts and you know this instinct to you know take care of our own as well as um, as well as the instinct to, um, uh, you know, to get ahead and prove ourselves and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and be able to uh, feel good about ourselves in, in, in all the evaluations that we, 
that we make. I think of this as it's a very basic instinct, but it's actually similar to a field that, that you've worked in for years. You know, we have a pretty strong instinct, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, to be attracted to fat and sugar um, <laughs> in the world. It would appear from my, I don't know much about culinary arts, but it would appear that pretty much every culture has the equivalent of a donut, right? Yeah. <laughs> Something which is sweet and fatty and that people like like to eat a lot of. And um, now it makes sense in evolutionary history, right? Because it used to be when there weren't enough calories around, there weren't enough nutrients. If you, if you went for everything that was sweet and fatty, chance of getting sufficient calories was greater. So you could see how our brains would evolve to want to do that. However, in modern life, it's usually not helpful. It's usually counterproductive. And most of us who live, who are fortunate enough to live in the developed world in situations where we have enough food, our big struggle is how to not eat the donuts. So this is pretty similar. We're hardwired to want to prove ourselves, to feel good about ourselves, to think of ourselves as competent, kind, attractive, whatever it might be. And we get a real rush of good feeling when we have a moment of success in this way. And we get a real painful sinking feeling when we don't have it, because this is all what we were wired to do. But we don't have to particularly indulge that. These sets of reactions may be very much like our attraction to fat and sugar, and that they're just not well suited to current life, but there are other things, other pathways to well-being that actually are suited to to current life that we can capitalize on and develop instead. Mm, I, I love that you've uh, made that connection. Um, earlier today, I interviewed uh, Anna Lemke, who wrote Dopamine Nation, and she used the phrase that she borrowed, uh, we're cactuses in the rainforest, right? There's yeah, this, this right. essential mismatch. Um, that I'm, you know, so I'm thinking like the, the little I know of sort of, you know, evolutionary anthropology is like living in a, in a tribe of a hundred people Th that would naturally temper your self aggrandizement and your shame. So both the grandiosity, like, Absolutely. like there, there would be sort of, you know, limited amounts that you could get away with. Like no, nobody would elect Donald Trump to lead their tribe of 120 people. But we might elect him, you know, to lead our nation of 300 million. Right. So, yeah, so, no, it's, so, a very, so it's a very important it's a very important point. And um, I, I, my friend and colleague, um, Rick Hansen, who's written a lot about um, neurobiology and and spirituality, uh, you know, he points out that, indeed, you know, in tribes of not only 100, often our ancestors were 25 to 50. Things like lying, things like stealing, things like puffing yourself up to, you know, and and always uh, uh, diminishing others or not sharing with others, that wouldn't play very well, right? You'd run into trouble doing that after a while. So there was a natural tempering of these instincts. And it's true, they're not as tempered. And in fact, we've now created an environment with social media that amplifies them, that intensifies them. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't often see posts on so social media that are very honest, right? That say, woke up this morning, had the runs again. I think I'm going to get a bad performance review at work. And mm, my partner's looking like he or she's going to leave me, right? No, it's, you know, here I am at a fantastic place doing fantastic things with this carefully posed and curated selfie that I'm showing you with fantastic people and you're not with us right? That's what we see. So that 
and, and psychologists who study this, you know, they, they love to uh, nowadays wire people up, largely college students, that's who they have access to. Mm-hmm. And they, they put them in a, in, a ma- in a lab with a functional MRI machine that can show different regions of brain activity under different circumstances. And they expose them to um, uh, basically manipulated social media feeds. And guess what happens? Talk about your interview about dopamine nation. When somebody receives a like or gets a new follower on their social media feed, there's a burst of activity in the nucleus, nucleus accumbens. There's all this dopamine released in our reward center. And this is the exact same thing that happens when we have a hit of cocaine or we have a gambling win or any other thing that gives us this boost where we suddenly feel great about ourselves. Um, it, it occurs with social media. I, I, you know, I often think that, uh, uh, you know, social media in this realm is like the human um, accomplishment of refining cocaine out of coca leaves. Hmm. For thousands of years, you know, um, indigenous people in South America chewed coca leaves because of their stimulant quality, which is not unlike caffeine in, in many ways. But it took the genius of European chemists to refine it in such a way so you could just have it you know, at this incredible level of stimulation. And we've, throughout our human history, we've been involved in all this self-esteem stuff. We've been, uh, you know, feeling inadequate, improving ourselves, but it took the genius of Mark Zuckerberg and the genius of people who designed social media algorithms to amp this up to a level where everyone's preoccupied much of the time with how am I looking? Right. Yeah. And, and and I'm not that much into social media. And actually, I have had people on my feed who are sort of, you know, sharing, you know, not necessarily about their diarrhea, but sort of struggles. And I tend to, like, not want to see those. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like, oh, that's a downer. But at the same yeah, time, well, that too, right? at the same time, if I see, you know, there's all this sort of superiority and schadenfreude about like I'm noticing how many judgments I'm making every single hour about all those idiots out there. And a lot of the conversations I have with people is like, it's just me being acting superior to other people. It makes me feel good. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that you you raised the issue of judgments because we become like judgment machines around this. And the part of the tragedy of it is it cuts both ways, right? If we become, if we're judgmental in the world and we're going through the world trying to feel better about ourselves, trying to undo all of the disappointments that happened in, in early adolescence when, when we somehow, you know, didn't make some goal, meet some mark and we felt, you know, hurt or rejected. We try to undo all of that with our current achievements. And some of those achievements are judging other people and thinking, oh, I'm superior to them. I'm superior to them. Look at the ways that I'm superior to that person. Well, it works temporarily to build ourselves up, but that same judgmental attitude then comes back to bite us when we stumble and fall. When we fall, we start to think, oh, you know, uh, you know, I'm such a failure. I'm such an idiot. The, you know, there's a lot of research now in, in self-compassion. And one of the things that self-compassion researchers point out is that most of us talk to ourselves in ways we would never talk to another human being. You idiot. What were you thinking? I would never say that to a friend. If I did, I wouldn't have any friends, but I have no trouble at all saying it to myself. So the, the, the relationship between trying to keep our self-esteem afloat and 
these judgments of others and then judgments of ourselves is um, is a very close relationship. And one of the things that happens when we begin to find our way out of this, which involves embracing ordinariness, is we become less judgmental. Oh, you're another human being who has good days and bad days, ups and downs, strengths and weaknesses. Funny thing. I'm a human being who has good days and bad days, ups and downs and strengths and weak weaknesses. Maybe we can be together in that. And maybe we can, and this is one of the prime ways out. I, I, I fear a little bit, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking at length about the problem without outlining the solution, yeah. that there is a solution here. And one of the prime components of the solution is learning how to make a connection, not an impression. You know, how can we connect honestly with other people rather than try to show them that we're sophisticated or interesting or even that we're kind, but actually to connect on an honest level about what it's like to be human. Because in those moments of connection, you know, when we're talking to a friend and we're telling them about our worries and they're telling us about theirs, all this self-evaluative preoccupation, all this chatter tends to quiet down and we go from being a me comparing myself to others to being a we or an us. And in that moment of us, we-ness, connectedness, ah, there's there, there's some peace and, and that becomes an important part of the pathway out of this. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I love the discussion in the book about the two different ways to be popular, right? There's huh. the, the status all right, whether it's, you know, money or things or power or influence or, or abilities. And there's what you call likability, just like being a good person. Um, right. right. And and, it, and it's so different, right? I mean, isn't it interesting? I don't know if you have this experience, but I can think back to, say, my high school class. And I can image, I can pull up images of the people who were popular because they were great at sports or they were really good looking or they knew how to be really cool and, and were up to date on the latest trends. And then I can think of the kids who were, who actually had an, a lot of friends, but they were just like nice people who were actually interested in the other kids and they found a way to connect to the other kids and it wasn't fancy at all. And that was a whole other way of feeling love and connection. And um, there've actually been studies of this that, you know, the ones who did the fir the former route, the first route, that doesn't age so well. Mm. A lot of them crash and burn because they can't keep up the glow of superiority. The ones who are pretty good at connecting to other people, that does age very well. Because as it turns out, when we look at studies of well-being, uh, a super important quality is this capacity for relationships. Um, I, I can share a, a finding. You may have come across this since I know you've researched health a lot. Um, there's a, a good friend of mine and, uh, and a colleague um, is named uh, Dr. Bob Waldinger. And he's unusual because he wears several different hats. So he's a, uh, a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist. He's a, um, a psychoanalyst. He's a Zen priest, and he's the head of the Harvard study on adult development, which is the longest running longitudinal study on what actually allows people to be physically and mentally healthy. And it was started in 1938, 
and it's been following a cohort of some 700 odd men. Harvard was all undergraduates, so it was just guys. Um, and uh, there are about 60 of them who are still alive. And they check out everything about their well-being, you know, their uh, their blood pressure, their their weight, their strength. And then as the years went on, they started measuring the quality of their relationships and lipid levels and C-reactive protein. And, you know, the, the, the study evolved with the science. And uh, Bob would tell you, uh, the jury's more or less in. We now know what it makes both for longevity and for well-being. And it's the quality of our relationships. Mm. It's people who feel connected to other people. And interestingly, and I find this deeply relieving as maybe because I'm a New Yorker, I don't know. It doesn't have to be harmonious all the time. In other words, you can bicker, you can argue, you can disagree, but it's important to basically feel that there are people in the world who care about you and would step up and try to help you if you needed them and you would be there for them. It's that sense of really feeling a connection and a commitment to other people that's huge in terms of our well-being. So this alternate pathway of of well-being, rather than be, well-being by somehow being better than others or good enough or meeting some inner standard and being stuck on this treadmill of constantly proving ourselves, the alternative of actually connecting honestly with people turns out to be a super, super valuable resource. Mm, yeah. So, you know, being from New Jersey, naturally, the song that's playing in my head is Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen talking about, you know, the, the quarterback and the cheerleader who are now in their 30s and like just struggling like everybody else, like that currency, you know, the, the exchange rate decayed tremendously. Right. Um, and I'm thinking I, about. And they, they, uh, go ahead. Sorry. There you go. I was, I was just going to say maybe struggling worse because they had put so many uh, resources into that basket to try to feel okay about themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, you know, I know, and a lot of the people that I have coached over the years, like the biggest obstacle, like they were, you know, the hardest people to, to get healthy are the ones who used to be athletes. Mm. Right? Like the, I, I, I can't run like I used to, or I used, you know, I was mm. a weightlifter. I was, I was a basketball. I was so fit. Now look at me. Right? Like they're yeah, carrying and, and the, the baggage. Yeah. And, and the pain of that, of, of losing that thing, right? The, the pain of losing that building block for their self-esteem. And because uh, it, it really hurts when we lose this. You know, we are so strongly wired to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to want to feel like we're, we're doing well, that when we feel we're not doing well, gosh, it can be painful. Yeah. So I want to get to some of the, you know, the good news and the solutions but I want to I want to say that just defining the problem immediately made things better. And I, you have a lot of exercises. I love the exercises in the book and the the audios on the website that you know you're really providing a lot of support for people who are who are trying to better themselves by not bettering themselves. <laughs> right, right. Um, and what was I going to say? Um, I've lost my. Uh, I've lost where I was well, going. You're starting, you're starting with some of the good news and the ways. Yeah, and the ways yeah, yeah. Out. Right. So, I like, thank you. Um, one of the things it reminded me of is like just embedded in our linguistics, as you mentioned. Like, if I'm, if I, however I think of myself, it's in comparison. I'm thinking about, um, you know, Stephen Hayes, who the founder of ACT, 
um, re relational frame theory, where that it's impossible for me to to think except in terms of comparisons, in terms of right. frames of this or that. Um, so what you know, what are if if it's so deeply embedded evolutionarily, linguistically, um, and even like one of the paradoxes is, oh, here's another self-help book. I want to become a better person by becoming more ordinary, and maybe Ron and I are going to have an ordinariness competition in here, and we're we're going to be like strutting our ordinariness. Like that could happen. It, it, it happens. I, I um, you know, one of the. Uh, um, strands of my professional work has been uh, training psychotherapists in mindfulness practices and and in how to use them in psychotherapy. And when we start to look at these kinds of um, self-esteem issues and social comparisons, it becomes hilarious among meditators, right? It's like, who's less self-preoccupied? <laughs> Who has less ego? Who has who has let go of these preoccupations more? <laughs> And, and and one of the you know hilarious things we see when we start to look into this is my gosh my mind can turn anything into either a competition or or a um, uh, a measurement stick for evaluating myself anything can be turned into that yeah but I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that just beginning to look at this is helpful because that is where we start just beginning to look at this is really helpful. Much of the time we can feel like fish in water. You know, we get so many messages that if only we bought the right consumer product or if only we had this kind of success or that kind of success, then we'd be happy. You look at commercials, right? It's all about, you know, buy this car and you'll feel like this kind of person, you know? And uh, we get so many of those messages and many people got these messages from their parents saying, you know, it's vitally important that you succeed in this, that, or the other thing for your well-being, you know, because that's the pathway to happiness. So given all those messages, we, we sort of marinate in them and they, they dovetail, they fit with our hard wiring, and we might not even notice that we're caught in an illusion. So just beginning to notice this is, is an absolutely important um, uh, stepping stone for um, uh, for beginning to free ourselves. Uh, the the other piece I think which is important is really noticing how much it doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and uh, it doesn't work for two reasons, uh, more than two, but two fundamental reasons. One of them is, um, I think of this as the Newtonian principle, what goes up comes down, right? Yes, you may be the captain of the football team or the sought after cheerleader, at one point, but there may be another point in your life where you don't have that anymore. Um, even if, uh, you know, if we're successful at one moment in one realm, that doesn't mean that that's going to persist. And the other reason that this is problematic is because of um, what we might call uh, narcissistic recalibration, which is a, a fancy term for saying that we keep changing our yardstick. Uh, I can still remember feeling proud of being able to put those multicolored uh, plastic or wooden donut type rings on a pole in the right order so that it looked like, you know, a Christmas tree or a cone or, or, or something like that. Look, mommy, look, daddy, I could do it. And, you know, at the moment, it doesn't quite float my boat the same way, right? <laughs> you know, things that once worked don't anymore. I do a lot of training of psychotherapists and, uh, 
um, you know, generally we worked hard for some kind of advanced degree, a doctorate of some sort or a master's degree uh, to be able to practice as a psychotherapist. And at the moment of achieving that milestone, most of us felt pretty good. Like, hey, I made it. Boy, that was hard work. And and I had my doubts, but but I made it. And I'll ask the group, okay, how many of you woke up this morning feeling really good about yourself because you have an advanced degree, hmm. right? And most people start laughing. And every once in a while, a newly minted therapist will begin <laughs> to raise their hand and say, why is everybody laughing, right? Because they're still feeling the glow. We habituate. We habituate to everything. And, you know, even if you're an Olympic athlete and you win the gold, what are the chances you're going to win it in four years or in eight years or in 12 years? Um, so, so part of this is just noticing, A, we're addicted to it. It fills our mind. B, it doesn't actually work as a very reliable pathway to well-being. And then once we can see that, then we can move into the things that can free us up. The first of which is, how can I go through my days making a connection, not an impression? Where could I be more honest? Where could I encounter, be in a situation, even if it's the job interview or the meeting the future in-laws and we're, we're all a flutter because we're worried about what they're going to think of us? What if at that moment we consciously said, okay, makes sense that you're worried, sweetheart, but why don't you just try to get to know these people? Mm. Why don't you just be, be honest and real with them and be interested in them and see if you can connect and see what happens from that. Have faith that there is an alternative to impressing people that, that actually can be you know, quite deeply fu fulfilling. And then there are other, there are other techniques also that are, that are really quite useful. One of them is simply savoring the little things, right? This is where mindfulness practice comes in very handy. Most people who have dabbled with it all know that, oh, you know, you practice a little bit of mindfulness and gee, if a raisin is interesting or eating an apple is interesting or looking at a flower is interesting, maybe I don't need so much to find life rich and engaging. And maybe I don't need, you know, I'm not knocking fancy vacations, but maybe I don't need a fancy vacation. Maybe I don't have to be a super successful whatever in order to find fulfillment. Maybe I can appreciate the ordinary little things and find fulfillment there. And, and you know, what most of us find who take up mindfulness practice with with um, with a little bit of of, um, of commitment to it is, gosh, simple things become really interesting and really fulfilling and we actually need a lot less so that that helps us move toward being more comfortable with ordinariness right and i could go and, on well and and yet the and the oh, challenge yeah and the, the challenge there is that there is like there's withdrawal like from any addiction right like the the, the ordinariness can feel painful for a while yeah. or the lack of striving then brings up all the, the self doubts, all the criticism. And you may get, it's not just, you know, that my own narcissism drives me forward. It's the reinforcement I get from everybody else about being the best, being the greatest right. growing. And that, you know, you talk about, um, was it the, uh, you know, feeling, feel the feelings, um, and being willing to sit with these illusions, which can be very disillusioning. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it can be. This is, this, is, this is not a path for the faint of heart, but 
the other path isn't either because the other <laughs> the, the other path is so hard anyway and 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 you know ha, is so bumpy with so many ups and downs um but I, 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 yeah, I think you're raising something really important when we well, for one thing, I have a friend who said to me, you know, I know a lot of people who are ruined by success, not that many that were ruined by failure. Mm. And that's kind of interesting because in the moment of collapse, absolutely it's painful. It is so painful to go from thinking we're the greatest things in sliced bread to thinking eh, not so much, right? It, 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 it's hard to fall that way. But if we can use each crash as an opportunity to inquire okay, what's this about really? First, what's the building block of my self-esteem that this is, that this is um, in some way threatening? Oh, I like to think of myself as smart and I made a dumb mistake and now I think of myself as dumb and, and that's really painful for me. When did I first get hooked on this idea that I have to be smart? <laughs> and how did the idea of being smart compensate for the other things? I, you know, to speak a little bit personally about it, I got hooked early on on being able to speak reasonably articulately, right? And, uh, and you know, it's not an accident that I'm in a lot of teaching roles as a result. I'm actually not feeling that articulate at the moment, but <laughs> just to illustrate you know, how, how this works in real and, time. And you're okay. Anyways, and you're okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'd be a little more, you know, like, hey, I'm doing great if, I, <laughs> if the words were flowing slightly more readily. But nonetheless, so I got hooked on this, right? And, uh, you know, so that in part to cover for other things, because it wasn't so easy for me that I didn't have the athletic skill you had as a kid. I was one of those kids who was, oh, time to, you know, pick the kids for the basketball or the baseball or the kickball team. I wasn't the last one, but I was certainly among the last four most of the time that was being picked in gym. And that was, that was super painful. So what happened? Well, I doubled down on the, you know, trying to show off for the teachers, which of course wasn't the greatest strategy for making friends with a whole other story. But, um, you know, I doubled down on that. But what happens is we can actually use the current failures, the current moments in which we feel like we're not good enough as doorways to explore these vulnerabilities and particularly to explore the past hurts that maybe when they happened, we didn't quite have the maturity or the resources to be able to simply feel the disappointment. I didn't have the maturity and resources to just feel, yeah, it feels, it feel, I feel really inadequate and I feel really less than the other kids being picked toward the end for the team. And in fact, I was sufficiently ashamed of it that I didn't come home and tell my parents about it. I didn't want them to think that I was a loser in that way. Mm. I kept it as hidden as I could. You know, I couldn't be that hidden. All the other kids knew, but nonetheless, um, and and double down on any strengths that could make me feel good about myself. So so actually the disappointments, which which you you mentioned, which are really hard, are golden opportunities because each one of these disappointments can sort of link us to where did this first become a problem? How did this get laid down? And as one of my uh, patients, uh, you know, said to me so eloquently, he said, you know, I'm getting the idea that when we bury feelings, we bury them alive. Oh, and wow. they don't just they don't just go away. And I, I repeated that to another patient who said, yeah, and you can never get the hole deep enough. Right. Uh, that and and that's that's really how this works. So we can actually use the current disappointments 
as a pathway to work with these feelings. And, and once we develop the courage to be able to feel like, you know, we failed or we got rejected or we weren't so great or we were just ordinary. Once we get the courage to feel that, well, then we're so much freer because what's the worst that's going to happen? In so many situations, the worst that's going to happen is, well, we're not going to think so highly of ourselves or other people aren't going to think so highly of ourselves right now. And that becomes okay. Hmm. Well, you know, for me, the, the, the trajectory of thought has always ended up with me, you know, dead in the gutter. Mm. Right? Like, like I'm, you know, of, of all my talents, that's one of my best is to, to go from <laughs> that person, you know, I made a mistake to, okay, I'm fired, I lose my home, my family leaves me and I'm lying in the gutter with a bottle. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I mean, I don't want to pry, but I take it that you haven't actually been close to that in real life, but you visited in fantasy a lot. Yes, right. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Our, you know, part of this, part of this whole self-esteem roller coaster is it's so, um, uh, it, it's so global and it's so total when it takes takes us over. Um, I have a friend who's a very experienced uh, psychologist and teacher, and you know, he said honestly at one point, "Yeah, I'm about as good as my last session." <laughs> if my last session with a client or a patient went well, I think, yeah, I'm a talented psychologist. I'm well-trained and I'm, I'm, I'm a good human being. If it went poorly, I think, you know, gosh, there's so many other things I could have been doing. You know, I, I maybe I, I missed my calling, right? And uh, my mind will do that. I can go from thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I'm full of great ideas. People like me. Um, I have things to offer the world to feeling like, eh, Nope. You know, pretty much the, the opposite of all that. And it's really interesting, right, to see how these, you, you know, how um, global these self-evaluations can be and how they can swing from one to the other. Right. So two, two of the strategies that you list that I absolutely love are both, say, sort of like nature-based in that they, they, they allow me to compare myself or to reference something other something beyond the human experience which i find extremely important like especially as we look at the human world we live in now it seems like you know deeply dysfunctional and 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 so two of them are like the adorable little puppy mm-hmm. um and then thinking you know evaluating trees or seeing how we evaluate yeah. tree can you talk about both both of those sure no i'd be happy to well, first, first the puppy, and um, we don't have the image handy, but if you could just conjure up an image of a really cute little puppy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and just, just conjure that image and notice what you feel inside as you conjure up that image. And when I'm doing this in groups, I'll say, raise your hand if what you feel is harsh, critical judgment. You know, <laughs> most people laugh because, and I say, speak to me at the break. Because <laughs> luckily, most of us, when we look at the puppy, we don't. We have the, the universal human experience of compassion, something like, oh, in fact, you spontaneously went there, right? Um, and now, even if that puppy were to pee and poop at the wrong time in the wrong place, even if that puppy were to not listen to instructions, we think, you know, he's young, he needs love, he needs training. And the reality is our minds 
pee and poop in the wrong place at the wrong time all the all the time, right? We're always saying things that we wish we hadn't, having thoughts or feelings that we don't like. We're, you know, one of the great uh, ironies of life is we think, well, I should be able to control my own mind. Well, good luck with that, right? I mean, I'm not saying we can't gradually evolve it in certain ways and cultivate certain states, but tight control, not coming. So part of this is is cultivating this attitude of really loving acceptance, the same way we would treat that puppy when we're working with our own inner experience, including the moments of failure, the moments of frustration, the moments where we're kind of full of ourselves and we're showing off. And then afterwards we feel kind of ashamed, like, ooh, <laughs> that wasn't my best self. I got, I got carried away. All of these moments, can we find a, a loving, compassionate stance toward them? And the trees, this it was actually borrowed by um, uh, a, a, a spiritual teacher. Many of you may know Ram Dass. He started his career as Richard Alpert, who's actually a, a psychologist at Harvard and teamed up with Timothy Leary with some of the early psilocybin studies. Long story, got thrown out of Harvard, but then became very introspective, became a serious meditator and uh, became, a, a, you know, a spiritual guide for many. And he said he just he just provides this little thought experiment. He says, you know, when you go to the woods and you walk through the woods and just remember what it's like to walk through the woods at the moment, there are trees of so many different shapes and sizes, right? Some are, are tall and thin. Others are wide and fat. Some you can see how they bent in their development, you know, the phototropisms that are involved as, as plants make their way uh, to the light in, in the forest. Some are, you know, have fallen down and they're being decomposed by fungi and they're rotting. And, and we look at all of this and it all looks pretty beautiful, right? The fungi look beautiful. The wood, as you see it coming apart, looks pretty beautiful. The bent trees are beautiful. The straight trees are beautiful. We have a sense of it's all, it's all perfect in its ordinariness. The minute we get out of the woods and we get into the realm of people, you know, all the judgments start flying. And, you know, we judge people based on their appearance. We judge them based on their attitudes. We judge them based on the clothing they wear. We make all sorts of assumptions about the groups they come from. We judge groups based on all sorts of wild projections that we have of, you know, that group's bad, this group's good. I mean, all, all the, you know, the horrible things we do with prejudice, bigotry, and marginalization, most of which is designed to try to make ourselves feel better, right? Hmm. As we were talking earlier, I'm in the good group, you're in the inferior group. And all these judgments keep keep pouring. So there's a reason why the Zen poets, you know, went to the, the mountainside to try to find sanity, because they noticed that when they were relating to the pond and the frog and the trees, they weren't so caught up in constant, constant narratives about themselves and judgments about themselves. They were simply present to the, the miracle, which is the, um, you know, the natural world. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a wonderful Zen teacher who passed away not that long ago, used to say, some people are impressed by the miracle of walking on water. And I totally understand that. I'm impressed by the miracle of walking on land. <laughs> you know, this is just amazing that we can do this. And it's amazing, you know, what's right here to be seen in, you know, in the earth. So there's definitely, there's one of the pathways forward here is to, um, is to really notice the world and notice the way in which 
perhaps the non-judgmental accepting attitude that we have toward the puppy or toward the forest, we could begin to apply toward ourselves and toward others, and it might begin to free us. Oh, that's beautiful. And one of the things I'm, I'm really thinking about a lot, because I think I've contributed to it in many ways in my role as a teacher, as someone who helped, you know, I've, I have to do social media and, and marketing to want to get people either healthy or as an executive coach to, you know, improve their skills, is how insidious the the need to be extraordinary is mm-hmm. in just ordinary conversation. So I, th- I was thinking about, like, personal branding. Like everybody says, you know, you should come up with a personal brand. And that's like, oh, I, I'm, smutty, I'm, I'm smart, funny, kind, right? Like, okay, so now I have something I have to live up to and be disappointed when I don't. Or just the, the, the very, I think, well-meaning uh, exhortation for people to not be ordinary, right? To be mm-hmm. exceptional. Like it's everywhere in, in the culture. It's especially in sort of the self-help culture where, and you know, at one point in the book, you're talking about what if I'm only in the 35th percentile in something? Like, to me, like not being in the 99th percentile is a tragedy. <laughs> like, but to be like, right. honestly, below average, you have these wonderful statistics, these beautiful, ironic statistics about people who claim, you know, 95% of 96% of professors think they're better teachers than their peers. Um, I think I saw a statistic from like Danny Kahneman's work about behavioral, you know, scientists thinking that they're more self-aware than than the average, you know, also in the 90s, um, that it, be, you know, yeah, no, it's, it's hilarious and, and it's endless, you know, and, and what, what I really love is one of the overarching findings, you know, where everybody thinks they're they're above average in this or that. One of the overarching findings is that um, the vast majority of people think that they're above average in their capacity to objectively evaluate their competencies. <laughs> right. You mentioned, you know, Dunning-Kruger. It's actually appears to be inverse. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah no, so, so we're, you know, we... You know, one of the reasons, this is a little bit of an aside, but one of the reasons that science, that humans develop science is because we can't trust our minds. We're nuts. <laughs> and one of the ways in which we're, and one of the ways in which we're nuts is these kinds of judgments that are designed to, that are, you know, based on some, you know, a really not so necessary instinct to try to feel like we're ranking high in the primate troop. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, but but I, I really appreciate though you're you're talking about all the exhortations because we are marinating in a culture which sadly has doubled down on the idea that that if you're not happy it's because you're not achieving enough and let me show you how to achieve more and then you'll be happy despite all the evidence that it it doesn't work that it's just a treadmill in which you then need more and more and more at whatever level. Uh, whatever level you arrive at. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. It's, it's, um, uh, as though what we were doing in treating an addiction to a substance was to say, you need more of that substance. Remember, you felt good the last time you got high on cocaine. <laughs> Well, yeah, you would feel better briefly, but I don't think that's the path out. And yet so many well-meaning people are offering that as advice. And the opposite is, you know, is seen as as loony. You know, when I was putting together the book and I was was actually uh, uh, 
um, polling friends for, you know, possible titles and stuff. You know, one of them said, nobody would buy a book about being ordinary. Everybody wants to be special. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, yeah. and, it, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's true. This is, this is running counter to, um, to many of the messages we get in the culture. But to my mind, the, the evidence is just overwhelming that following this side of our instincts, the sort of, you know, competitive get ahead, I have to be better than others side of our instincts, following that and putting our energies in that basket, um, it doesn't work. It's, it's not a great long-term strategy for people. It's a lot like cocaine. It feels really, really good when we score a win, but it doesn't take long at all before we need another, another dose. Mm -hmm. So I want to, I want to, I know it's time for us to stop, but I have one, one more question, which was sort of the, the objection to the whole thing, which is if, if we go here to embrace ordinariness, do we still have nice things? Can we still have iPhones and Itzhak Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma and Kanye and people who, you know, sort of monomaniacally devote themselves to a thing, even though it's being driven by, you know, this cocaine habit? Yeah. Well, well, it's interesting because I think, you know, there's no question that many people wind up excelling because it's driven by the cocaine habit. There was a Nobel Prize winning biologist who's interviewed by a journalist, and he had toiled in the lab for decades with failure after failure after failure, kind of like Edison with the light bulb, right? And and the, the journalist said, How did you how did you get the you know the motivation to continue after all those failures? And the biologist said, Oh, not enough love. <laughs> you know, because he was compensating by trying to become a Nobel Prize winning biologist. Now, it's wonderful that he contributed to the world, but there are many people who contribute to the world in very deeply meaningful ways where it's not mostly driven by this addiction, where it's mostly about they get it that they're suffering in the world and they want to do good, or they get it that there's a puzzle that's just interesting to solve and they would like to solve it. And when we look at what goes wrong in organizations, I know you consult organizations, most of the time, it's not a lack of raw talent. It's that people are somehow not able to all be rowing in the same direction because they're so concerned with who becomes the one who discovers this or that, who becomes the one that gets credit for this or that. You know, it's it's all the the trying to boost me that gets in the way of us doing something meaningful together. And I have a lot of faith that as human beings, if we rely on some of these other instincts for connection, for cooperation and, uh, and, and gratitude and appreciation, that we will still accomplish really interesting and useful things. It just won't be based on a cocaine habit. It'll be based on other pathways to fulfillment and, and, and we'll all be better off. Oh, good. <laughs> Glad. So, Ron, thank you so much. This book has already been revolutionary in my life in, after a week in ways that I'm only beginning to to glimmer, to glimpse. And I just, you know, I, I'm so happy to have this conversation and to to feel like I'm sort of, you know, basking. We're basking in each other's ordinariness in a way that feels quite special. So. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, it's nice, but the good the good news is everybody can have it, so it's not you know, it's, it's it's free. Yeah. Also, 
so so thank you thank you for your interest in this thank you for your honest reflections because it can be hard to reflect honestly about this stuff you know we we live in a culture that's got this bizarre mythology that only losers have fluctuating feelings about themselves. If you were a real winner, you'd be nonstop me on top. And, you know, so, and it is exactly these honest conversations that are so relieving and detoxifying for all of us. And, and I'm hoping that offer some peace and, and, and a possible pathway for, for the people who are listening or viewing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the sense I had from reading your book is an ex, it's an exhale. And it's one that I had not mm. taken in maybe decades. So it feels really mm. good. I, I like that image. I can I can experience it right now. Uh, so thank you so much. Um, you got to go. I think you have, uh, if you leave the browser window open for like 30 more seconds, it'll be fully uploaded. And okay. uh, um, I, I, I guess what the one thing we didn't say was like where people can learn more. I'd like to highlight the website. Uh, yes. So, sorry about that. that. Thank you. Can we add that? Oh, please. Yeah. Yep. Now, Im immediate. Well, go, Im go ahead. You, you want to ask it as a question? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, immediate self-evaluation for forgetting, letting it go. No worries. And Ron, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, the easiest thing is to just check out my website, which is drronsegel.com. And Siegel is S-I-E-G-E-L. And maybe you can offer a link to it. I will. Um, I will. Is that DR or, or, or doctor? Yeah, DR. DR, DR yeah, no, Ron no, I'm sorry. DR, drronsegel.com. Uh, and uh, you can learn about this book, about other things. There's lots of free meditations you can download. There are exercises associated with the book that are free for all who'd like to um, experiment with them, uh, as well as resources from lots of other people. All right. So thank thank you for reminding me uh, to to, <laughs> to, to include that. It's uh, yeah. The website is is beautiful, full of resources, and I just want people to just go get the book. When you get the book, it will it will it will direct you to the website. For, for the audios and, and PDFs and things like that. So however, however they find you, I hope more, you know, the world beats a path to your door and that you're okay with it either way. Um, exactly. And, and my greatest hope is to be okay with it either way and may it be of use to others. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been lovely getting to know you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Harry. Delight, uh, delight talking with you. I always, when people are from New Jersey, I always feel like you're, you're the brethren from the other side of Manhattan. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and thank you for all your work. And, and I did notice should pat, tap your brain or buy your book on another occasion about the Google ad stuff. Cause I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm not an experienced marketer. And even though my publisher is doing stuff, I keep thinking, ah, should I do more and all that? But maybe I'll maybe I'll pick your brain at a later. Oh, that that will be a very interesting conversation given this context. Exactly. You can check out the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com/slash-five-three-two. Let's see what's going on. Garden news. We got these really cool beans that we're just cooking on the stove. Mia made something this morning with the onions and the beans. They're called. I think they're called wing beans, and they, they kind of look like a bean got dressed by uh, Nudie, uh, Nudie Cohn, who the guy who uh, created the Nudie suit for, uh, for Western wear. It's all sort of fringy. Maybe it's like a, a green bean mated with a Komodo dragon, and this is the offspring. They look really, really cool. Look them up. Uh, I'll, uh, if anyone has any questions, just uh, post a comment. And uh, I'll, I'll look up the botanical name on the seed pack. But they look like just, you know, winged beans, like they could just go 
fly around and you'd have to catch them with a net or something. Um, delicious. And also we got our first grapes in about five years. We got the muscadines. Um, you all went out and picked a, uh, a basket of them, probably uh, half a gallon. And they are just delicious. We had not really had a grape harvest since that year where I saw a YouTube video about how to prune your muscadines. And I did so. And <laughs> five years later, they've recovered. So we're very excited about that. And we're getting in what looks to be the last of the eggplants. So our kitchen counter just looks like a, uh, a text message with a whole bunch of emojis. And uh, those get, those get uh, roasted and turned into various um, dips or um, well, mostly dips like baba ganoush and, and, and things like that, or even soups and stews. Uh, I'm not spending a ton of time in the kitchen right now. I just sort of walk in and see what delicious stuff from the garden has been prepared. In movement news, I started my uh, Qi Jing class with uh, Robert Peng online. It's a Qigong mastery. And so I've been doing 30 minutes of Qigong in the morning. Um, so far, it's just mostly been breathing and a little bit of uh, mu coordinated muscular tension and arm movements. But I'm sure we're going to get into, into lots of other things over the next three months. And then did a little bit of weightlifting and some jogging with a few sprints in there. Um, I am going to be focusing more on um, short sprints on the anaerobic capacity. Um, the next event we've got going on for the ultimate team is in the first weekend in November. It is the um, Great Grandmasters uh, Worlds, I think. <laughs> um, and uh, so I hope to be in better shape for that. It also means probably dropping a few pounds just to maximize my muscle to weight ratio. And hopefully that will all be good. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Burry Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, 
Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 